attitude. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we're going to get started here. We are going through the Gospel of John, and uh, so if you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 17. We'll be going through verses 6 to 19 together. Um, we've started John chapter 1, verse 1, and now we're all the way to John chapter 17. So hopefully you're well acquainted with the Gospel of John at this point, as we've been going through that together. And uh, so this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And uh, one of the most significant passages, only because we get an insight as to this, this intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. And we have details in it that we want to unpack today. Really, there's a lot of theology in it, and um, I wanted to dig into that today to help us understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here in his prayer. Uh, and so, starting in verse 6, all the way to verse 19, it begins by saying, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And this is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us. We need you. God, I pray that I will worship you. I pray, Father, that we would cry out to you. We need you. Help us to learn from your word what you have to say. God, I don't know where everybody's at today, but you do. And as we dig into this section of your prayer where you're praying specifically for your disciples, help us to understand what it is that you are saying. May your spirit open our eyes to see and may our ears be open, not just audibly, but spiritually. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 
So just to, uh, you know, help us to kind of backtrack a little bit to find out what we covered in verses 1 through 5, which that's uh, the last time we were in John, that's what we covered. Verses 1 and 2, we saw that Jesus prayed that the Father would glorify him so that he would glorify the Father. We first looked at how Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. You remember, uh, you know, this showed us how Jesus actually in his prayer was fixed on the Father. So we also unpack that in him lifting up his eyes to heaven, he did it with no shame or hesitation. Just like uh, the tax collector in Luke 18, if you remember the passage, the tax collector, because of his own unworthiness, he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven because of his sin, because of his shame. But Jesus did not have this problem because Jesus was without fault and sin. So Jesus in his prayer began also with speaking of the hour that had come, the hour being where he would be given over to die. This brought to us the truth of Jesus being given over to hang on the cross where he would be glorified, which meant that this would be the time and place where Jesus would be highly exalted, where he would enter into a state of glory and exaltation, which would be a transition from his humiliation. The cross was that place where Jesus would be highly exalted and revealed to be the son given from the father, which was the will of the father. Remember Isaiah 53, 10? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That was his will to crush his son. Which is an idea right now that's sneaking up in the church that they want to take away the orchestration, the, the father orchestrating the death of his son. They want to get rid of that idea. But friends, it's the cross where the will of the father will be completed. Since it was for that very purpose that the father would crush his son in order to make sons and daughters for his glory. Jesus was given the authority while in his humiliation to give eternal life to all who had been given to him by the father. We see this in verse 2. And so because there are many misconceptions about what exactly eternal life is, we answer the question of what is eternal life in verse 3 of John 17, Jesus tells us in his prayer, and this is eternal life, not just to live forever, not just to be in heaven, not just to be in a mansion in heaven forever, though that's pretty dope and amazing. <laughs> eternal life is that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know here just doesn't mean to have a knowledge of someone like a celebrity like we covered the last time or knowing someone famous, which we can actually know them as far as information or reading magazines, whatever it is you're doing. If you're following celebrities, I would encourage you to stop. <laughs> and you act, y'all act like you know them too. But to know here is to know a person through a direct personal experience, which implied a continuity of relationship. It assumed that one would become acquainted and familiar 
with a person. This is what Jesus means when he says, knowing the Father and the Son. Eternal life here meant that one had a direct personal experience and a continuity of relationship with the Father that was given to them by the Son. So know the Father and the Son in a favorable way, which comes from believing that Jesus Christ was sent from the Father. This was the mission of Jesus Christ, to fulfill the will of the Father, which was to lay down his life so that we who were without eternal life could be saved. That's what he did. In verses 4 and 5, we saw how the glory of the Father and of the Son was accomplished, and it was by the obedience of the Son to the Father. Jesus prayed that he had glorified the Father and that he had accomplished the work given to him, which would bring the end result of Jesus being glorified in the presence of the Father as he was glorified before the world existed. So what is the difference then? Because he's asking to be he said, Father, glorify me with the same glory that we had when the world wasn't even formed yet. What is the difference here? The difference is that he will be bringing us with him to his glory. God. <laughs> That's amazing. Our passage today goes from Jesus praying to the Father for himself in preparation about what he was about to do on the cross to now praying for his disciples. Okay, and then we'll get into after that how he actually prays for us, church. But that's not what we're talking about today. Today, he's actually praying for his disciples. And so I only have two points today for you. Uh, the first point is that Jesus manifested the name of the Father to his disciples. We see this in verses 6 through 8. And then Jesus prays only for his disciples, verses 9 through 19. So the first, Jesus manifested the name of the Father to his disciples, verses 6 through 8. And Jesus prays only for his disciples, verses 9 through 19. And then the second point, we're going to have actually five subpoints to that, okay? So follow with me because this is very important. Again, we're talking about the very prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus spoke of manifesting the name of the Father, it meant, in verse 6, that he showed this is what manifest means, showed, displayed, and revealed who the Father was. He was showing, he was displaying, and he was revealing who the Father was. How did Jesus reveal and display who the Father was to his disciples in his prayer? Well, he tells us it was through the words given to Jesus from the Father. Check out verse 8. Well, actually, let's start in verse 7. They, the disciples, Knowing that everything that you have given me is from you, he says in verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So we see four things here that show us, the disciples, how they knew that the words given to Christ was given to the Father. The first, and what he's saying in verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me. So what words were given to Christ that were given to them? I'm just going to point out two because there's so many in the gospel of John, but these two I think are very significant. If you go to John chapter 2, we see Jesus speaking about his death and resurrection in verses 18 to 22. Check it. This is what he says. So to the Jews, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It was when he actually flipped tables in the temple. 
You know, he was very upset. He flipped tables because they had made the house of prayer into a den of thieves. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you, will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, check it, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here, Jesus spoke about his death and resurrection, and it was, the, it was telling the disciples who he was in his death and resurrection, and it was the word that they believed about himself. So here, the word in John 2 was about his death and resurrection. In John chapter 4, you remember, Jesus gave the word about him being the Messiah to the woman at the well. In verse 26, he actually admitted this in John chapter 4, where he said to her, I who speak to you am he. He didn't do this all the time. If you remember, he was telling his disciples, don't tell people yet. But then this woman, who was considered unclean, came up to him, and then he kind of exposed her. He put her out there. But then he also revealed who he was. He was the Messiah promise, and he actually said that in verse 26. Afterwards, the woman went and told others in her town what Jesus said of himself. And then in verse 41, many more believed because of his word. So the word here being that Jesus was the Messiah. So there are other examples we could focus on, but the point of what Jesus said here in his prayer is that the words concerning himself, which was given to him by the Father, these words were given to his disciples. And so the validation of his disciples becoming actual disciples comes from the words about Jesus that were given to him by the Father, which was then given to his disciples. And notice in his prayer that the words were given first before he spoke about their belief in the words. That's another important thing. Verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them. So reception of the word about Jesus cannot come before what Jesus had already said earlier about the dispensation of giving eternal life. In verses 1 and 2, when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to, to, to do what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so Jesus gave the words to his disciples here in our text, in his praise. He, that's what he's showing us. Words that were given to him by the Father, and that is how they could receive the words of Jesus concerning himself. You see, you're not saved because of the reception of the word. That's not like the initial cause to your salvation. It's the giving of the words that saves you. That is what brings in salvation. And, and we're going to talk about what receiving means later, but I want us to make that very clear is that Jesus first says in his prayer that he gave them the words given to him by the Father. It is how we become saved. Remember John 8, 37, where Jesus addressed some of the Jews there, and he said to them in verse 37 of John 8, he says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. They were bragging about that. And then he says, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So the words of Christ concerning himself 
found no place to those who wanted to kill him because they were not of him. But for those whom the Father gives to the Son, he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. John 8, 47. Those that are of God hear, meaning that they know what Jesus meant when he said what he said about himself. But for those who are not of God, John 8, 47 also says, the reason why you do not hear them, the words that he was speaking, is that you are not of God. Those that are not of God do not hear, meaning that they could not understand what Jesus meant when he spoke of himself. The disciples were chosen, John 15, 19, and they were given to the Son, John 6, 37, and this guaranteed that they would receive and know the words of Christ. And so the way the disciples could know what the words of Christ meant was because it was given to them. And because it was given to them, they could believe. And belief was only possible because it would be granted by the Father for them to believe. In other words, this whole thing is of, of God. Like I say every week, man, it's probably a play thing to you right now. That your salvation, and the reason why I say this, saints, is because, listen, I come from a background where my salvation was contingent upon my performing, my keeping it. I felt like, man, if I fell today, I'm not going to get raptured today. He going to come now when I'm messed up? This is meaningful for me because it's deprogramming for me. There's no rest in, like, being afraid every day of him coming. There's no rest in that. The next in what Jesus says in his prayer about how the disciples knew that what was given to him by the Father is that they have received the words that Jesus spoke. Remember, whoever is of God hears the words of God, and it's the reason why the people didn't hear his words. It was because they were not of God, John 8, 47. And so the receiving of the words of Christ were not decisive for salvation, but rather they are evidence of salvation. It proves that one had been given to the Son by the Father in order for them to receive the very words that were given him. An example of this, we can go actually to Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. I always bring this back. Me and Wayne do this all the time. When we talk about, you know, like faith being the initial cause to your salvation. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the words. He heard it. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choked the word. So they heard it. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it. Then it, it, it shows us something which Jesus points out at the end part of verse 22 of Matthew 13. It proves it unfruitful. In other words, the fact that the word was choked, the fact that it didn't bear fruit, proves that the very ground was never fruitful to begin with. It's proving that someone was never saved. Receiving the words of Christ are descriptive of those whom the Father had given to the Son. And the lack of perseverance only proves faith to have been unfruitful. So genuine reception of the word only happens when one is chosen by God to believe. 
which is the case with his disciples here in the prayer of Christ for them. Their reception of the word was a reaction that proved them to be of faith, which is how they knew that what was given to Christ was given to him by the Father. So it wasn't just that they heard the word, but that they came to know the truth that Jesus had come from the Father. An example, again, could be found in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. Jesus says it here. This is a good example. Check it. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This is what people were saying about Jesus. Then he said to them in verse 15, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right answer. Right answer. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Not because you, you, you got this. Man, you, you hit it on the spot. You get a thousand points and the whole nine, like, you did well. No, that's not what he says. Verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This truth about Jesus wasn't a self-discovery moment for Peter and for his disciples. It was revealed. It was manifested to them by God. The knowledge of this truth came from God alone, and it was given to his disciples. The third point I want to point out in verse 8, they have come to know the truth that I came from you. He's praying this, and what Jesus says to the Father in his prayer shows us another layer of their belief in what Jesus spoke. They knew in truth, meaning in certainty and reality, that Jesus had come from the Father, which is the main message in John's gospel. And what is also important in John's gospel is the fourth of what we see in his prayer right after. They have believed that Jesus was sent. So Jesus manifested, meaning he showed, he displayed, he revealed who the Father was by giving them the words that were given to him. Why is this so important for us today? Why is this such a big deal? Again, there are many who say they believe but show no evidence of their faith. The church is packed with people who say they believe. The church is packed with people who are performing Christianity and not living it. Listen, it, you know, I used to hate going to church. Yeah, I used to hate going. And it was because it was a show. I saw people in the choir smoking weed, smoking cigarettes right before service. You walk into that. And then they're up there sweating joyfully, doing their thing to only go back outside of that building to live however they want. That's not the Christian faith. That's not hearing from the Lord. See, there are those who hear audibly and there are those who hear spiritually. And those are worlds apart. Those who listen audibly only hear with the ear only. They hear good things about God. But those who hear spiritually, this is when God gives them the ability to understand and believe. 
That's different. Because once you understand who he is, you're all messed up. You're all, you're, you're, there's a new layer of messed up now. There's conviction now. There's like this, you're being messed with right now. The stuff you used to love to do, it's like you can't even enjoy them anymore. You heard spiritually. God's given you the ability to understand him, to believe in him, as far as what he said about Jesus. Verses 7 and 8, now they... Now they that excuse me. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. He's talking about his disciples. For I have given them the words that you gave me. They're messed up now. That's why Peter wanted to be hung upside down. Now, that's why Paul suffered the way he did. That's why most of the disciples ended up as martyrs because that word messed them up. When they saw the resurrected Savior and their eyes were open, they were no longer the same. So to know means to understand, to have learned and to perceive something to be true, which many in the Gospel of John did not, and I will say could not do. So those who audibly heard the word about Jesus without understanding revealed to us in his Gospel that their spiritual condition before God was without salvation. His word found no place in them. Jesus in his prayer to the Father shows us the disciples and how they came to believe. It was what the word did in being given to them, which caused them to believe, which they knew in truth that Jesus was sent by the Father. So those who spiritually heard the word about Jesus with understanding proved that they were in fact given to the Son by the Father. And they would prove to be his disciples by their love and obedience to Christ. They believed that Jesus was sent. Do you? Do you believe? See, this is not speaking to someone who heard audibly like everyone else did, even in the time of his visitation. There were those who heard spiritually. They've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus being sent by the Father. Jesus prays for those who were truly his and not just for those who heard only words, but for those who actually believe. He did not pray for anyone else who was there. He specifically prays for those who were given to him by the Father. So our second and last point in verses 9 through 19, Jesus prays only for his disciples. So he's not praying for everybody. We'll talk about that later. He prays specifically for his disciples and not for the world. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Then in verse 10, he says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So Jesus here prays not for the world, but only for his disciples. And when we're talking about the world, he's talking about those who are still under this worldly system. Those who are under Satan's rule. Those who have not been given to him by the Father. We see an intentional prayer that excludes the world from his prayer to the Father. Doesn't sound too loving, does it? In fact, in John 17, we don't see Jesus praying for the world at all. The world is mentioned 18 times in his prayer. And not one is in a favorable way. 
And he's not praying for God the Father to help the world. I believe the reason for Jesus not praying for the world only is because he's praying and interceding for his people here. That is why some have called this the high priestly intercessory prayer of Jesus Christ. Intercession, according to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, comes from the Hebrew and Greek words that speak of a pleading with one party on behalf of another, usually with the view to obtain help for that other. In the Bible, intercession normally is in a form of prayer on behalf of someone else. So it's interesting that since Jesus is praying to the Father to help his disciples and not for the world, we see here an example of the Lord's choice. He's choosing not to pray for the world. It's interesting to see how people have the idea that God loves everyone the same. Now I'm digging into your little closet right now. But you know what's funny is that we, we don't apply that same standard to ourselves sometimes. Like, I don't love other people's kids like I love my own. I already got enough, right? I got enough issues right here. But seriously, like, if you're a parent and you have kids, you have a special love for your children that you don't have for other people. That's what we're seeing here in this prayer. He's loving on his disciples, and then he's going to love on those who will believe later, and he's not praying for the world. This applies to God. He is not praying for the world because the people in the world do not belong to him. They are those that have not been given to the Father or to the Son. For an example, if you remember, Judas was not given to Jesus. And it led to his fall. But for his disciples, Jesus prays that the Father would keep them and unify them. Which is our second sub-point. He prays for the Father to keep them unified. And he shows in his prayer that he has guarded them. In verses 11 and 12. Check out verse 11. Where he's unifying the saints or the disciples. He's praying for their unity and also He's praying that they will be kept by the Father. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So in verse 11, Jesus prays for the Father to keep the disciples, and to keep here means, literally means, to cause a state to continue. To cause, to continue, to retain, to keep. This is a powerful prayer because ultimately, listen, his prayer would be answered. Not one of them would be lost. I do not believe that the disciples could have been not kept. Because they would show perseverance even to the end. And their perseverance comes from their preservation, which we see in his prayer. I think it's unthinkable to suggest that the prayer of Jesus here could not have been answered. To say that would mean that Jesus prayed a, a, a prayer full of flaws, an imperfect prayer to the Father. But that's not the, that's not the case. He prayed for them to be kept, and history shows us that they were kept to the end. And it wasn't because they knew right things about God. It was because they were preserved by God in prayer. 
He prayed, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And so being kept was for the purpose of their being in unity which could not be undone. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them. He's talking about when he was with them. And now one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. The son of destruction here is talking about Judas Iscariot. And so the disciples were guarded, but from who? You ever ask that question? Well, the answer is very simple. It's from Satan. What happened to Judas in John 13, 27? You remember, then after he had taken the morsel, Judas, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. So the reason why Satan was allowed to enter into Judas is because he never prayed for Judas from the beginning. He didn't guard Judas. He guarded his disciples. Why do you think Satan couldn't take advantage of them to the point of them actually falling away from the faith? It was because he prayed for them. Now, in him keeping them, did that mean Peter didn't, you know, trip here and there? He denied him three times, but he was kept. Thomas doubted, but he was kept. They ran from Jesus when he was arrested, left them alone, but they were kept. Listen, man, being a disciple is not exemption from issues in your life. It's not. It wasn't for them. They were kept talking about their salvation. That's not contingent upon their performing it. They were saved because they were prayed for. They were kept because he loved them. We are, listen. I'm just pointing out what he's praying here. He prays. And he guards, he admitted that he guarded them, just like he guards us. We've given Satan too much credit in the church. If I mess up, it's because I messed up. My salvation is kept in heaven for me. I can rest in him and I can, listen, I, I can be imperfect and yet come to him because I'm still guarded. You're guarding, you're being guarded, you're being preserved, you're being saved, you're being a child of God. That's his work. Listen, and what's amazing is that he's still in heaven interceding for us. We got him in heaven before the Father interceding on our behalf with his perfect righteousness. And then presently, we have the Holy Spirit helping us, convicting us, correcting us. But don't give me no excuse about not coming to church anymore. Well, I ain't ready, Pastor. You know, I had a rough week or whatever. Like, I don't feel... <laughs> we don't come to church because we got it together, y'all. We really don't. We really don't. We come to church to remember who he is. None of his disciples were lost. Not one of them 
were overtaken by Satan. And if that's not enough, check out what he prays next. Our third subpoint. He prays that they have fulfilled joy in themselves. Verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What did it mean for the disciples that their joy would be full? Fulfilled here literally means to provide for by supplying a complete amount. To provide for completely. To supply fully is what that means. Jesus was praying to the Father for the complete supply of joy for his disciples. And the reason he's praying this is seen in verse 14. He, he prays for them because, this is the fourth sub-point, he prays for them because they would be hated and because they would be in the world. He says in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, just like he kept them when he was there. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus is praying for his disciples to have a, fully supply, a full supply of joy while being hated by the world. They were going to need it. He told them this in John chapter 15. Uh, he told them that he is the true vine, remember that? And that the Father is the vine dresser and how they would abide in him. And as a result, they would bear fruit, which is good. But then in John 15, 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He said this to them and it was followed by what he said in John 15, 18. They were going to need this joy there, too. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He prays for them because they would be hated by the world. And he prays specifically that their joy would have no shortage. Their joy would be full. And in John 15, we see how they are helped. Because Jesus is praying. He's reminding them, I'm divine. You are the branches. My father's divine dresser. Then he, you know, tells them, bear fruit. Then he tells them, have my joy fulfilled in you. You'll have my joy. And then he says, the world's going to hate you. But you're going to have joy no matter what the world does and says. That's not happiness. Because your wife or husband is on point today. Or, you know, you're, this joy is not contingent upon anything but upon Christ. But then he adds in verse 26 and 27 of John 15, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you, whom the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the very beginning. So he gives them help along the way. The fifth sub-point, he prays for them to be sanctified in the truth by his word, verses 17 through 19. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's what we're doing here. Doesn't, doesn't it, like, the word will cut you, but it will also heal you. It's doing surgery. It's messing with you. It's checking your motives. It's checking your heart. That's how we're sanctified. 
We're not sanctified by church attendance or ministry obligations. It's good that you're here. I love the fact that you're here. But listen, it's not about what you do. It's about what's been done. And the word tells us what's been done. And we have to remind ourselves because we need to be sanctified. We need to be set apart. The world is constantly out to change you to be like it. And so a life without the scripture is a life that's easily conformed to the world. That's why church services cater more to unbelievers than it does to believers now. The pastor caters to the carnal and not to those who actually heard, who actually yearn to hear the word of God. I don't want the additions. Forget the lights, the smoke machines. Forget the pastor with the nice hair and the nice teeth. My teeth are crooked right now. I got to get that checked. You know what I'm saying? Like, it ain't about all that. Church is not about all that. Just give me the word. I need sanctified. Because this week, the world's going to try to unsanctify me. Your word is truth. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. To sanctify here means to cause someone to have the quality of holiness. To make holy. Is what sanctified means. And there are two things here that Jesus is praying for. First, he prays that the disciples are sanctified, made holy, in truth, by the word. The word of God is what makes a believer holy. And in context, it is the word about Jesus, which is found in Holy Scripture. The setting apart of the Christian also comes from the word about Jesus, found only in Holy Scripture. For the disciples, they will be set apart from the world because of the Word given to them by Christ about himself, which was given to him by the Father. And second, he prays that for their sake, he consecrates himself so that they would be sanctified in truth. So we're sanctified by the word. We're also sanctified by his consecration. I've always heard, you know, because it's real catchy, you always hear it. You know, yeah, we're sanctified by the word, but very seldom did I ever think about that my sanctification was contingent upon his consecration. And to consecrate means to dedicate to the service of God. It also meant loyalty to God, to dedicate to God's service. It was for, for their sake that Jesus dedicated himself to the Father. So that they could be sanctified, made holy in truth. And so in this prayer, Jesus is speaking to the Father. He prays for his disciples to be kept, guarded, unified, and to have fulfilled joy, which is found only in the consecration of the Son. Which can never be undone. It's unthinkable again to think that Jesus could unconsecrate himself. So if our salvation is dependent upon the consecration of the Son, that can never be undone. He will keep his because he can never not be who he is. This is good news. This is, this is good news. The consecration of the Son seals the preservation of his disciples. 
and so it is with us saints. We're seeing the heart of Jesus being given to the Father here in his prayer. So I would encourage you, saints, to delight in the Lord. Study the word. Be about prayer. He died for that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word today. I pray you would help us. I pray, Lord, that something today that was taught from your word would encourage, strengthen, and build the faith of your people. We thank you that salvation was given, namely through your word. And may your word bear fruit. Lord, if there are those with a stony heart today, we know that you could turn the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Would you save? Would you deliver? Would you open the ears, not just that they would hear audibly, but spiritually? That they would be acquainted with you, that they would continue in fellowship with you, proving that they are of you. And Lord, we thank you that being guarded and being preserved doesn't mean being freed from imperfections and weaknesses and faults. You guard us and you keep us in spite of us. So we thank you for this word today, God, that we see in your prayer for your disciples. And I pray that you will continue to do the work, do your work, that you will be glorified and that we will be edified and that the world, those who are are not of you will come to saving faith. We ask this in Jesus' name.